This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Rich Lowry at the bottom of the hour. National Review, some pro- promising poll numbers from Republicans. Uh, it seems the American people are blaming Democrats for inflation. They're picking up our Republicans with Hispanics as well as uh, the African-American vote, as, uh, as well as people who are independent, which is key to victory. We'll discuss that. There's so much uh, out there, not only with the war in Ukraine, but elsewhere. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The governor and I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do. Now, if there isn't a parody of her on SNL, They have just given up comedy, just given up comedy. That is the vice president. Kamala's catastrophic catastrophic public appearances are only exceeded by what she is like behind the scenes, according to a new book. As she loses her 10th staffer and blames everyone but herself for all of her failures. As we look, uh, by the way, where Joe and Harris stand on the polls eight months from the midterms. Number two. We believe that if there is an Iran nuclear deal that meets the standards the president set, to verifiably block the pathway of Iran to get to a nuclear weapon. We will do that deal uh, because we believe it is in the American national security interest to do so. Right. Uh, You want to do the deal. Iran deal about done and it's worse than you think. It threatens destabilizing another region as if Europe and Afghanistan were not enough for these people. Things got to be have to be done to stop it. Anything. All 49 Republicans are against it. We'll discuss. Number one. And I want to know whether Putin intends the world to be afraid of the nuclear option. Would he use it? So if it is an existential threat for our country, then it can be used in accordance with our concept. Really? Demetrius Peskov, spokesperson for Vladimir Putin. The war. Ukraine moves to take back territory around the capital. But in Mariupol, it's apocalyptic death and cruelty and there's no surrender. As a frustrated Vladimir Putin has his henchmen threaten nuclear war, as you just heard again. So a few things are happening. The president of the United States is en route to Brussels. He is going to be addressing an emergency session of NATO, at which time he's going to be uh, sanctioning 300 members of the Duma. It's their Politburo, their Congress. So their personal assets will be hurt overseas. It's doing a good job. Uh, I, all these countries doing a good job. Uh, cracking down on these oligarchs, freezing their funds. And their family funds, I hope, so that I can't just pass it off to a trust. We know Pope Francis talked to President Zelensky yesterday. Uh, Zelensky tweeted about the call. He says he told his holiness about the difficult humanitarian situation and blocking of the rescue corridors by the Russian troops. We know, too, that uh, mayor, uh, uh, we know the mayor of, of Kiev, 
who we know is Klitschko. He will address a Munich, uh, uh, the Munich uh, over in Munich, a video link there to different members of the European community, the European Union, trying to get people to understand how important it is to hold on to that capital. And we also see uh, it is so Mikolaev is also another area which got to be protected. They've been cut off from humanitarian aid. And I just ask you, we got to use drones to drop aid. And if the drones get blown out of the sky, okay, we lose some money. But at least they have a shot at getting water and food to be able to fight or to be able to survive while other people fight. So the Russians have to be getting frustrated. Word is, according to the Daily Mail, they only have three days left of food. There's no coordination on different fronts. They don't even have a commander in charge of this effort. Um, They've been drove out of an area right outside a suburb of Kiev, which is just huge because they're supposed to be taking the capital by now. And we also see that they have additional momentum because it doesn't seem as though the Russians have any troops to replenish the ones that are out there. They're 90 percent capacity of where they were. That's 10 percent in a month. And if there's people whose conscription is up, people that die, they've lost at least 10,000 soldiers, likely more wounded off the battlefield. Let's say usually you double that, so about 20,000. And then no Syrians have shown up to fight, which is promised in the Belarus army has no interest. They're delaying as much as possible. Just the leaders like each other. The Belarus wants no part of being with the pariah of the world. Meanwhile, the Brett Bear's done a great job interviewing different ambassadors from different countries who are united in support of Ukraine. Last night, he spoke to, to Slovenia's ambassador to the U.S., whose prime minister went to Kiev last week. Cut three. Well, I would first of all like to say that we have to give all our support we can. After the visit of uh, the three prime ministers from the Central Europe, we are moving in this direction and working very, very close with the United States. So uh, at the moment, Ukraine should get all the help from the military, humanitarian and also tech help. And I'm right now in the Silicon Valley together with a member of the Slovenian government uh, working with the big tech companies. Now, think about this. One of the things that bothers Vladimir Putin is NATO's presence. And they loved it. When it looked at NATO was breaking apart and the European Union was having trouble and the U.K. had their Brexit uh, because NATO was saying, listen, we don't really see a threat here. And we're in Afghanistan. You were fighting with Afghanistan and with the U.S. there. and The U.S. leaves doesn't even tell us. But what's happened is since they invaded the Ukraine, more and more troops have flowed to the region and more will. More and more European countries are pledging to get to their 2 percent GDP, which is in the doctrine and in the manifest. And now they will. A lot of things are going wrong, let alone the fight itself. And what about the CIA? How did you guys misassess the strength or the lack thereof with the Russians? I mean, that's not a strong army. There's no coordination. How did we not know that? Number two, why did we think Ukraine was going to fall in a few days? We've been training them reportedly for since 2014. Donald Trump armed them the best he could. Why did we not think they would fight? I mean, I can understand me being 6,000 miles away. But we've been on the ground there, and why didn't we do more prior to this? General Jack Keane, on what Eastern Europe should be getting from the president and what everyone should realize is necessary. Cut seven. Clearly, we've got to put more troops in Eastern Europe. We're going to have to stay there longer than anybody expected because of this particular threat with Putin. And we've got a man up to do all of that, and and we've got to get those kind of commitments out of 
out of the NATO members. And finally, I mean, there's a humanitarian assistance crisis developing here. We've got to use some imagination and also some spine to deal with this, to be able to bring convoys in to assist the people in these cities that are going to go through this catastrophe, or a Berlin-type airlift to do it, and warn Putin without equivocation, if he interferes with it, we'll have to make, make sure the convoys in the Berlin airlift gets through. Exactly. Why should people starve to death in the middle of a war that came to their came to their land? Nothing they did. They were never a threat to Russia. At least can we give them food? And what there was this there's this project Zipline. They've got a fleet of drones. We we did a feature on it with Fox and Friends. You may have seen it, where they drop off blood to underprivileged areas and dropped off needed aid to underprivileged areas, mostly in Africa. Why can't they take off from Poland, Romania? And drop off aid. And if they get shot out of the sky, okay, not good. Waste of money. We don't get the aid. But these these drones are hard to hit. And are they going to be looking for drones in the sky? Or are they going to be looking to blow up people on the ground? Why not do that? The other big story is what's happening in Geneva. In Geneva, we're cutting in a run. We're trying to reinvigorate a 2015 JCPOA, which is a non-nuclear deal to, to tell Iran you can get this money, you can be relieved of sanctions, but just don't make a nuclear weapon. It was a bad deal. There, was, there weren't SNAP uh, unannounced inspections. You could not get to military bases. They never came clean on the baseline of what they had. That was all discovered because of a major operation by the Israelis. Fred flights on what could be cut behind closed doors. They're not goes, the, the doors are not only closed to us, me and you, but they're closed to the U.S., because Russia is doing the deal, and Russia has taken the nuclear waste from the nuclear energy plant from Iran and taken it to their country and building the plant. Fred Flights, former White House NSC chief of staff, cut 13. We actually put a, uh, Russia in charge of this deal because the Iranians would not sit down with us to negotiate it. And under the agreement, and this has been widely reported, Iran will turn over its enriched uranium to Russia and if a future Republican president pulls out of this deal, Russia will give that enriched uranium back. This is a way to punish a future Republican president. The fact that the Iranian and UAE heads of state will not talk to the president of the United States because he has bungled Middle East policy so badly and wants to make a deal with Iran that will lift sanctions on an Iranian terrorist organization. I don't see how our Middle East policy could be going worse. This deal's a disaster. There's bipartisan opposition to it. My hope is it will be killed. Uh, my hope is, too. Meanwhile, on the other front, some devastating news come after Kamala Harris. Every time you hear her speak, it is just a word salad. She doesn't feel confident. She doesn't know the issues. She doesn't get any backing from her own staff, 10 of which have quit. And this is an opportunity as a vice president to really do things. For example, when George Bush first got the job as former uh, former uh, governor of Texas, he really leaned on Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld, second time through as secretary of defense, Dick Cheney, best friends. He was chief of staff with Gerald Ford. And, of course, he was secretary of defense, first version Gulf War with Bush 41. He said, OK, I got the domestic thing handled. I got it. But internationally, I want people to respect us. I mean, I'm going to hire Colin Powell. Now, the vice president has a huge opportunity. Why does the vice president with this administration? Because the president has never been considered sharp or innovative, and she is young, and as a a minority woman would be given every opportunity coming off as attorney general and a senator to maybe be next in charge because no one really thinks that Joe Biden is running again. 
So there's a book coming out right now that talks about how the the vice president claims she has an impossible job. She says the president has on multiple occasions been accused of punting critical but overbroad tasks to her deputy, to her, and she said she can't get it done, like the border. Try? Like when it comes to voting rights, why wouldn't you identify some districts in which Democrats are complaining, outline it, show up, meet locally, and get you to roll up your sleeves and get something done? When it comes to the border, what plans do you think that we're working with Donald Trump? What weren't don't you think of Donald Trump? Here's the plans, and this is what I'm going to do. You put on a jean shirt. You put on your khakis. You go up and down with where the wall was and why it wouldn't work and why they're building infrastructure. There's all Democratic ways of handling it. But instead, she never showed up. She took, did a couple of Zoom calls, showed up in Guatemala, had no answers on the issues, never, said she'd never been to the border, which ended up being true. And she says, I've never been to Europe either. Remember what she said when asked just this week when touring a library. She was given the most circuitous answer possible, just asking people, what about the library? When we come back, I'll let you hear that, and we'll take your calls, 1-866-408-7669, and tell you more about that book. Also, some of poll numbers. It's got Republicans very excited. I'll tell you the details when we come back. So glad you're here. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The governor and I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here. And um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children. Unbelievable. I mean, she can't sit there and ad lib about a library. She couldn't talk about Poland. She laughed off a question about refugees. She 
had no deliverables when she travels, doesn't seem familiar or interested in the issues. She wants a role similar of Queen of England. I'm a minority. I have a, I'm African-American or partly, and look at me now. But she's been terrible to the point where if, if Joe Biden doesn't run, there's no way she would even be considered the favorite to run. Dana Perino weighed in, cut 15. They have set her up with three things in the recent memory that did not work out. So they told her, go fix voting rights. They gave her no evidence that there was voting rights problems that she could t- turn to. And they never were going to have the votes. So they gave her a, a mission that she was going to fail at. On the border, they didn't give her any policy change recommendations that she could go forward with. So she was like, OK, actually, I'll just go do uh, root causes down in Central America. And the third thing is they went to Poland and she didn't have a deliverable. So if I were the chief of staff for the president, I would try to figure out what my problem is to try to help her. Right. And she's lost 10 staffers. Uh, the last one left for personal reasons. OK. Didn't even give her an out. Like, I have a better opportunity. Want to go back to school. Turn my ankle. I um, don't want to wait for it to heal. The name of the book is called This Will Not Pass. Uh, evidently, she has weekly lunches with the president. But every time she does, they lack real depth or personal political intimacy. It's a notable departure from the president's characteristic warmth with just about everybody else, they say. I actually don't think he's that warm. Uh, the unnamed lawmaker compared an unnamed lawmaker compared the vice president's political decline to a slow rolling Greek tragedy. Her approval numbers are actually even below the president's. Her issues: she asked to do election reform, but they didn't let her in on the Joe Manchin meetings. The president wouldn't blow up the filibuster, so it was really fruitless to try to push for that. She'd never have gotten sixty votes. And Kamala Harris's national security advisor, this woman Nancy Milkalny, evidently. She is stepping down for to focus on personal matters. She doesn't even have another job. I'd rather quit and get unemployment than continue to work here. Now, keep in mind, the one thing she did answer, uh, Lester Holt, I just remembered this, was, did the president consult you before he decided to leave Afghanistan? And she said, yes. Even killed her there. The worst move in American history. And she was a part of the decision-making. So maybe she might want to say pass on that. This is called will not pass. Uh, Kate Bedingfield didn't necessarily deny that she, what what she was quoted saying in the book was true, but says this in private. Bedingfield has taken uh, taken to note that the vice presidency was not the first time Harris's political career has fallen short of sky high expectations. Her Senate office has had many had been messy, and her presidential campaign had been a fiasco. Perhaps he suggested the problem was not the vice president's staff. When asked about these statements attributed to her in the book, she says. The fact that no one working on the book bothered to call to fact check this unattributed claim tells you what you need to know. Vice President Harris is a force in this administration. I have the utmost respect for her. She does uh, as she does every day to move the country forward. Now, do you know what she didn't say? This isn't true. I don't feel that way. I never said it. I would challenge those reporters to come forward with their sources because what is what is quoted here is not the case. I mean, the president, uh, the former president used to say fake news. That's it. So later, uh, just hearing some of the things that the that Kamala Harris has said in the past makes Charlie Hurt wonder how much worse this can get. Cut 20. What's really shocking right there is the, that that quote from Bettingfeld, where she's talking about all of the, the all of the ways that Kamala Harris was a disaster in her Senate office and in the campaign. And yet Joe Biden picked her as his vice president. It tells you all you need to know, obviously, about Kamala Harris. 
but it also tells you all you need to know about Joe Biden and then the fact that they're now backstabbing one another inside the White House and trying to pull the rug out from underneath uh, uh, Kamala Harris in the White House tells you all you need to know about the people that, that Joe Biden hires and surrounds himself with. Right. I mean, look, uh, John McCain didn't do a good job with Sarah Palin. We know that in respect. Dan Quayle got a lot of unfair abuse, did have some credentials, but Bush 41 did not benefit from naming Don, Dan Quayle. But Al Gore benefited from uh, uh, Al Gore had definitely helped Bill Clinton. Mike Pence was a huge help, a huge help to uh, Donald Trump. You cannot overstate that. And I think Vice President Pence, excuse me, Biden did a decent job for President Obama. Although a lot of the advice he gave President Obama was terrible. <laughs> Everybody's laughing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. And I want to know whether Putin intends the world to be afraid of the nuclear option. Would he use it? Well, we have a concept of uh, domestic security. And, uh, well, it's public. You can read all the reasons for nuclear uh, arms to be used. So if it is an ex existential threat for our country, then it can be used in accordance with our concept. Yeah, that is Dmitry Peskov, spokesperson for Vladimir Putin, saying, oh, nuclear option? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. Uh, with me right now, Rich Lowry, National Review. Hey, Rich. Hey, Brian. How's it going? What do you think of that statement? I'm, I'm not as taking a any who, options off the table, Brian, this that, morning. Okay? That's all I ask. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 unlike Joe Biden, you're not telling me what you won't do. So... So, yeah, I mean, what do you think about them? You, as somebody who studied the Cold War like you have and watched uh, the wall fell and we all witnessed that, what do you think about a guy making the, the statement like that with that type of power? Yeah, well, I think there are two levels to it. One, if you wanted to reassure people you're not going to use nukes in this conflict, you would just say it, right? He didn't say it. Two, on the other hand, you know, you're a nuclear power. You never want to say you're never going to do it because you, you need it as a deterrent. So that's clearly they, they want us to be thinking about it in this conflict, and they, they're never going to take it off the table. I mean, nor, nor should, should they. Um, but, yeah, they, they want it to be in our minds, and it is in our minds. And David Ignatius of the Washington Post, I don't agree with him on a lot, but he had a column the other day saying the main takeaway from this conflict for the rest of the world is going to be if you have nukes, nukes keep them. If, if you don't have nukes and you can, get them. Because obviously if Ukraine had kept the nukes at the end of the Cold War, this never would have happened. And if they joined NATO, they never would have been invaded. That's pretty clear, too. Uh, the other thing would be we, you know, they weren't on the imminent of getting a NATO admission. I think Vladimir Putin— but for the most part, as an outsider, seems to know that he totally miscalculated. And our CIA, who said the Russians were much stronger than they were and would win within a week, within days, Zelensky would be dead. Those are the reports coming out of the White House. Now he lives, he's lasted almost 30 days now, and his army repelled, took a suburb back outside the capital city of Kiev. 
So yeah. what's your take so far of how much wrong had how many wrong perceptions there were in this conflict? A lot. As you, as you put it, both Russian intelligence and U.S. intelligence were surprised by what happened. I was surprised. You know, the, the first night of the war when Russian paratroopers landed at that airport outside Kiev, I was like, okay, they'll be in the city center in 24 hours. We know where this is going. To Ukrainians' incredible credit, I mean, this is a fight that will live down through history, have fought them to a stalemate. And that's extraordinary. And I don't. It doesn't look as though the Russians are ever going to take Kiev. And Zelensky's government is not going to fall. So that that's amazing and, a, and a, a victory for the Ukrainians. But the problem is, you know, the Russians aren't going away. And they don't need to take these cities to inflict incredible pain. The most prominent example, obviously, is Mariupol. So, you know, they, they've, they've been encircling that city for weeks, almost since the beginning of the campaign, still haven't taken it, but have almost shelled it to the ground. And they'll just do that everywhere else. And um, – exact this pain until Zelensky blinks. Unless, Rich, Vladimir Putin feels the pressure domestically. Mm -hmm. Unless everything really starts to fall apart, all those shelves get bare. Instead of a small protest or medium-sized protest in 150 cities, they get bigger in all cities. Too many to arrest. And, you know, I'm seeing this story in the Daily Sun or the Sun of, uh, of uh, London, and they're saying the Russians have three days of food left. Yeah, I mean that that would that's the other part of the equation. Obviously, the pain is not all on the Ukrainian side; it's been on the Russian side. Um, in terms of the military campaign, the casualty counts—if they're anything like accurate, you know, ten thousand killed or anything like that in three weeks—and you know, two or three times more casualties—that's an army literally being decimated. And you wonder how sustainable it is, and especially with the supply problems, with the supply convoys getting hit, with reports perhaps. So they're just the economic sanctions may, making it harder to have uh, parts for repairs. So maybe, you know, the Ukrainians in the West squeeze Russia such, such that maintaining the campaign is impossible. I, I think that's unlikely. I, I hope it happens. Um, it's not totally impossible, but I wouldn't bet on it. So, Rich Lowry, our guest. Rich, I remember the buildup to the Iraq war, Afghanistan war, the attacks. I get it. I remember the first Persian Gulf War, too. I understand it. But some people believe that this is the same pattern and we should not be in this at all. Uh, Sorab Amari is one of them, a publisher of Compact Magazine. Cut nine. I'm getting that weird 2003 deja vu feeling. I remember, and you remember, uh, when the whole nation and the whole West was being goaded into uh, what turned out to be a really stupid war that uh, killed thousands of Americans, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, um, and ultimately the outcome was what? utter waste. Um, except this time, the war that they're agitating for is not against this little podunk, vicious Arab kleptocracy like Saddam Hussein's. It's against a nuclear-armed uh, Eurasian civilization uh, with one of the largest arsenals of strategic weapons on Earth. Um, so how is that how is that happening? It's very puzzling and it's very disturbing. And I think Americans should have this sense that we've been down this road before. Maybe we should press our elected leaders of both parties because it's really a uniparty for war to take a different path. Obviously, I have a different feeling and I have different reasons why. But you're the guest, Rich. What, what is your saying to people listening to you know, these people aren't dumb they're, and they're not saying there's not well thought out opinions. But why do you think he's wrong? Well, first of all, it's right that you should kick the tires on any conventional wisdom. If there's something that everyone believes, you should, you know, like, 
is it really a reason for everyone to believe it? So I, I'm all in favor of, of dissenting voices and having having arguments, even arguments you really disagree with or you think are completely wrong. I just think where where Saurabh, and he's a friend of mine, is wrong is we're not talking about you know invading uh, an Asian or Eurasian or uh, a Middle Eastern country with 150,000 U.S. ground troops and occupying and, and trying to change its system of government. We're talking about defending a legitimate system of government that has already been established from an of aggression. In the 2003 analogy, I reject that analogy, but if you're going to um, give it any legitimacy, it's Putin. He's, he's the one. He's the one who launched the invasion. Uh, we didn't. He's the one who launched the ill-conceived invasion and didn't think it through. We didn't. And what we're talking about here is arming the Ukrainians to try to defend themselves. And I think it's appropriate to, to re really be mindful of the dangers of escalation. That's why I oppose a no-fly zone. I oppose a humanitarian airlift. airlift. I don't think it was crazy, even if it was the wrong call. I think it was a close call on whether to fly those makes out of Ramstein. So that, that's all fair enough. But it's not as though there, there's just not a, a massive constituency anywhere for invading Ukraine and fighting the Russians. I just think that's a straw man. Number, number two is we didn't choose this. The question is, do we just let every country get overrun by a bully nation? Should China just take over uh, Mongolia and Taiwan? Is it okay for Russia just to take Ukraine, Moldova, maybe Estonia and Lithuania? Because we, you know, we want to get involved. Iraq didn't go well. So we can't get involved. I mean, yeah. do we stand for anything? I mean, we're not out there saying go, you know, go to war, but we have to respond intelligently to an invasion correct. that had nothing to do with us. Yeah, correct. Uh, again, um, you, you can't go back and unspool Iraq, and uh, I would disagree with Saurabh on on the, the way he looks at Iraq, but, you know, it's it's legitimate to say it was just a mistake from the beginning to the end. But that doesn't mean, you know, we, we fold up our tent and come home from every single engagement that has not become Iraq. You know, NATO is not a debacle. NATO wasn't a mistake from beginning to end. It's been really important. Um, and the thing is, if you just let this happen, um, then he's right on NATO's borders, directly on NATO's borders, and, and emboldened perhaps to try uh, to take an inch of NATO territory and dare us. And that's a hugely dangerous situation. We don't want to get a war with, with China over Taiwan, so you're hoping to warn them off by, by showing how expensive this kind of adventurism is. And then final point, it's just it's a horrible cost for people in Ukraine. But for us, frankly, to speak in cold-blooded terms, the cost is almost nothing. All we're doing is, is imposing some sanctions, not a big cost to us. You know, we, we don't import a lot of Russia's stuff, and uh, shipping them arms, which, you know, some of these missiles are expensive, but they're, they're just a, a rounding error in our defense budget. So there's not a huge cost to us from, from doing what we've been doing. Although we're having trouble getting uh, weapons over there and replenishing our stocks, that's a big mystery to me. I guess supply chains is going to be an issue, obviously, but we have to go in there. Can you imagine, Rich? That if the, we had a situation where Vladimir Putin was not in power or people understood that they're not this, uh, this 10-foot-tall giant that needs to be feared. And, and, and yeah. now he's brought down to size. His economy sucks, and now his military sucks, the, and, his, and his facial work sucks. So we should find a way to cut this guy down to size, and we got to fi finally give NATO a true mission. We have to put the extra money in our budget to make sure there's a military there to stop Poland, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, all these nations, be able to protect themselves along with our presence there. And, yeah, and that and, would and be that would to, be uh, worth a lot, it. A lot of the a lot of the, the people who are skeptical of what we're doing, they're they're very strong 
Donald Trump supporters. And this is in some ways a really important vindication of, of Trump, because what's finally happening? The Germans are actually spending on their defense, right? <laughs> that That's really important. And we, we need to spend more on our defense, but everyone else needs to uh, get up and carry their burden, too. And we need to be mindful. You talked about the difficulty of replenishing our missile stocks. We need to revitalize the defense industrial base in this country. Um, it, it's, it, you can't, we can't get in a war and not be able to build enough material to produce fast enough to get on the b- battlefield. So that's something we, we've let mm-hmm. kind of rust away and we need to revitalize. And every day that we're there, uh, China's loving it because we're not focusing on them, but that's ultimately we're going to be building up against. Finally, and you did write a great column with great perspective on uh, Putin's heartless siege of Maripol is the latest reminder that all progress is fragile and how quick you could be bombed back to the Stone Age. That's what they're doing over there. They're doing it in a cowardly way. They're doing it from afar, uh, actually aiming for civilian sites, senior centers, yeah. schools, apartment buildings, uh, theaters. I mean, who would think these people uh, would be uh, so without courage? Because one-on-one, they're actually losing to the Ukrainians. So yeah. having said that, what do you want to take away from that? What do you want well, to take I mean, away from it's, the it's, You're right. I mean, it's shameful. It's dishonorable. But it, look, it just shows here we are in the 21st century where we think we're so advanced. And this is a siege, Mary Pohl, could have been directly drawn out of the 14th century, 15th century, 16th, 17th, you name it. So it just goes uh, – there are always going to be evil people in the world uh, who are power-hungry and brutal. And you, you, you need to be mindful of that and protect yourself and resist them. I hear you. Uh, Lastly, on this Iranian deal, I understand unless the Republicans can get 60 votes in the Senate, they're going to be able to write this thing up that started in 2015, is going to expire in two years, and it's going to be able to remove the terrorist designation from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. There's nothing we can do. Yeah, it's uh, th- this is not the way the system is supposed to work. Uh, I've I've not followed the uh, arguments over the Senate procedure closely, but this was a problem with the deal the first time around. It was clearly a treaty should have been submitted to the, the the Senate as such and had the normal requirements, but they they worked around it and Biden could do the same thing. And you'd think that everyone in Congress, whether you're Republican or Democrat, would be upset even if they support the deal at that sort of end run around core congressional prerogatives. But unfortunately, they never are. All right. Uh, Rich, what what, what should Joe Biden's message be in Brussels? I know he's coming to sanction 300 members of the Duma, the Russian parliament or whatever you want to call it, the Politburo. So they're going to do that. What else should he say? Well, I mean, he should just be really uh, a stalwart that this is a threat against Western civilization that is the, at the core of human progress, and we're not going to tolerate it. And with we're with with the uh, with the Ukrainians, and we want them to prevail. Gotcha. Uh, thanks so much, Rich. Fascinating time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. All right. Uh, meanwhile, this just in: uh, Russia climate Russia's climate envoy Antolo Chubius has stepped down and left the country, citing opposition to President Vladimir's war in Ukraine. That according to two people familiar with the position. So the climate envoy, somebody got John Kerry's attention. Chubias is one of the few 1990s-era economic reformers who remained in Putin's government. But he has seen enough. So did 14,000 Russians who, since this conflict, have moved to Turkey. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Your turn next. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. 
It's Brian Kilmeade. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. People look back and, you know, there are things about Trump that made them uncomfortable, but Biden's policies are making their families' lives unbearable. And, and it, it, it's shown in his poll numbers. And, and there's a lot of buyer's remorse out there. And, you know, his party's going to take quite a nice little lick in the uh, midterms. And uh, there ought to be great concern because nothing seems to be going well. And everything that they're doing seems to be out of whack. And when they're talking about the point to job, you know, unemployment numbers are low and they've had any jobs. But we all don't need the qualifier on that because over the last two years since the pandemic, 15 days to slow the spread through two thirds of the country was told to go home and stop working. And then when they went back, there was all the controversy about being scared. And then when we went back, you had to get vaccinated before you do it. And then people quit back and forth. They know whose policies they were. And they know there were more deaths in COVID-19 under President Biden than was under President Trump. And he had a vaccine to work with. So even when he once had huge approval ratings of COVID-19, now it's at 53%. According to a Gallup poll, environment, 45% approval. Foreign affairs, I don't know how we even got a number this high. He's the worst ever. Foreign affairs, 43 percent. The situation with Russia, 42 percent approve of the way he's handling it. And that's usually the high. Let's see how this ends uh, when it's all said and done. Now, on the generic ballot, when asked who would you vote for in the midterms, Republicans have a four-point advantage. Seventy-five percent of the voters say Dems are to blame for inflation and are out of touch. When it comes to Hispanics, the... um, Right now, 31% approval from Hispanics for Joe Biden. And among those independents, 32% approval. This is beyond disastrous because they had Hispanics. They had minority votes. They've lost about 10 points on the African-American votes. Still, they have a huge advantage. But still, you can't afford to lose much on the black vote. And then when you talk about independence, that's who wins and loses elections. Here's Mike Towery. He's chairman of the Insider Advantage. He was on... He was on with Sean last night talking about so far on foreign affairs. I think he's been abysmal. Cut 36. It is a disaster. I mean, we've seen this. It started with Afghanistan. The numbers started to drop. And, and since that time period, there's been very little good news to bring Joe Biden back up. And he did get a slight bounce. And I think you and I talked about it. I thought he would get a quick bounce uh, when the war began because Americans rallied behind their president at wartime. But Jimmy Carter's situation when, when uh, Russia, then the Soviet Union, uh, invaded Afghanistan, same thing. He got a bounce. He went to 50, which was really high for Carter. He went back down. And what we're seeing right now is Biden going off of a slight bounce and beginning to come to a new low level in terms of his overall approval rating. And I don't know where it stops. So just think about this. You know, when you have a president, certain presidents have great uh, skills, like, for example, communication skills with Reagan, nitty gritty of policy. 
you had people around him and other people could negotiate like Jim Baker. Donald Trump had Mike Pence who knew how to work with Congress. I look at Joe Biden. Where's the A-team around him for a 78-year-old who lost his fastball and wasn't well-respected? Liked, but not well-respected. The thing he should have been good at is foreign policy, and it's been terrible. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, One Nation, Saturday night, 8 o'clock. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. This hour, we're going to be joined by Brett Velikovich. He's actually in the battlefield in Ukraine. Senator Marsha Blackburn in the battlefield going that judicial nominee thing. Asked a good question yesterday to the nominee, Judge Brown, uh, Judge Jackson. Hey, uh, do you know the difference between a man and a woman? No, not a biologist. Can you believe this? That's the country we're in right now, or the state of the country. And Doug Collins, what's the deal in Georgia? And what about these new polls that show Kamala Harris sucking wind and the Democratic Party uh, on a respirator? So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The governor and I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do. I mean, I'm not kidding. That was one sentence and just the latest tragedy, which is Kamala Harris. The catastrophic public appearances are only exceeded by what she is like behind the scenes, according to a brand new book, as she loses her 10th staffer and blames everyone but herself for all of her failures. And we'd look at where the Republican and Democratic Party are eight months from the midterms. Number two. We believe that if there is an Iran nuclear deal that meets the standards the president has set to verifiably block the pathway of Iran to get to a nuclear weapon, we will do that deal uh, because we believe it is in the American national security interest to do so. Do you know you're dealing with Iran? Iran deal almost done and it's worse than you think. It threatens to destabilize an entire region as if Europe and Afghanistan weren't good enough. Next stop, the rest of the world. Things can be done to stop it. Let's discuss it. Number one. And I want to know whether Putin intends the world to be afraid of the nuclear option. Would he use it? So if it is an existential threat for our country, then it can be used in accordance with our concept. Really? Dmitry Peskov, spokesperson for Vladimir Putin, the war. Ukraine moves to take back territory around its capital, but Mariupol uh, is apocalyptic in terms of death and cruelty. And no surrender right now from the tough Ukrainians. And a frustrated Putin has his henchmen threaten nuclear war, as you just heard. Brett Velikovich is actually a former special operations intel analyst and Fox News contributor currently in the Ukraine working with Project Dynamo to try to get as many people out as possible while still being able to report from us from the ground. Brett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Brian. Thank you for having me today. No, no problem. First off, uh, I mean, I'm seeing encouraging signs as there's some pushback around the Capitol. It doesn't seem to be in – I haven't seen one expert say the Capitol's in danger of falling. But Mariupol and uh, Mikovic, it could be 
fall, have a different fate. Do you worry about that? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I've been in the capital multiple times. Um, every single time I go there, I'm, I'm warned that uh, the Russians will be in the center in 24 hours and the capital is going to shut down. But to be quite honest, um, that place is a fortress. Every time I'm in there, there's multiple concentric rings of security. They're checking everyone. Um, the Ukrainians are dug in for a fight. Uh, so I don't particularly think the Russians are going to be able to capture the capital. Uh, they're not getting the tactical wins that they really need out there at this point. So uh, now a lot of these other cities, very, very dangerous situation. And from the humanitarian perspective, which is what I'm dealing with primarily out here, the Russians continue to shell civilians constantly. There's been 10 million people who have been uprooted or displaced because of this. There's 3 million refugees who have already fled the country. And Russians continue to use attacks on civilians as their main weapon of choice because they are not gaining the tactical ground needed against these forces. They're trying to demoralize the populace. And I'm seeing this aftermath here of them deliberately firing on schools and supermarkets in places like Kharkiv or Herson with civilians trapped inside. I just got sent a photo of an ambulance that is completely shot up, which is further proof that um, they're committing war crimes. They can't do that. It completely shot up this ambulance in, in the occupants inside. So there's heavy fighting in a lot of these hot spots, especially Mariupol, where now there's an estimated 300,000 civilians trapped there facing dwindling supplies, no access to safe drinking water, virtually no stocks of food. I mean, people, Brian, are literally drinking water from the sewers just to survive. And so the humanitarian aid there, uh, organizations that are out here are having to push through enemy lines right now, which is proving to be very, very difficult. No kidding. And this is some uh, evidence that we have of how bad it is in, in Mariupol. There were two buses full of aid, aid, uh, uh, aid coming to that city, no weapons. They took the buses and then they took the 15 people hostage. And they, it's assumed yep. they're setting up camps in Russia. Exactly. Many reports of this. And not only that, um, the Russians are essentially telling the civilians in Mariupol that they're here to help them. They can help them with humanitarian aid. All they need to do is get on these buses. They're going to take them to um, a nice place where they can be fed and water and, and all that. And when the guys actually get on these buses, they're taken to prison camps and interrogated. There's multiple reports of this. And then what's worse is the Russians are now heavily targeting media and other information outlets. They're kidnapping journalists, Brian, local government officials, other activists who are providing accurate information on the ground that's showing the true nature of the war crimes. There was a French journalist just um, a week ago working for a radio station in Ukraine that was kidnapped by the Russians, held for days and tortured. And then uh, even another situation on March 21st where armed men kidnapped a publisher, an editor, and two journalists in in Melitopol, which, um, uh, you know, is another real hotspot location. And they've essentially disappeared. So the Russians want to cut information broadcast by TV. They, they don't want people to know the truth out here. And so, you know, folks like us and yourself, you know, we need to share the stories of these war crimes and we need to show how Russia is lying to the rest of the world. So I understand, too, uh, the Belarusian people are starting to blow up the rails that would bring maybe their troops and equipment to the border. And the Syrians have not shown up to fight yet that anyone's seen of this foreign fighters that they were called to fight for Russia. Uh, Belarus would be the replenishing of forces. They say they're, the Russians are down to 90 percent of their fighting force, and they're the three, some reports have three days left of food and fuel. Have you seen some desperation on the Russian side? Absolutely. I mean, they have to be desperate. Their tactics are so confusing to me, i got to be honest. I've seen so many drone video of uh, the Ukrainians just striking these tanks that are out in the open. I, I, I mean, they're just sitting out there for weeks like sitting ducks. And so 
they if you're a Russian uh, soldier right now, you're really regretting your your occupation. Uh, but the the on the other side of that, the real issue here is Putin continues to say in public statements that Russia will win this war no matter what the cost. And that's a really important statement to remember. What exactly does that mean in terms of weapons uses? Does that mean he will use nukes? I, I don't know. There's other analysts out there in the U.S. government that can determine that. But he's threatening Poland if they continue to support bringing in military aid. He's getting more and more desperate by the hour. Um, they're striking these residential buildings. Over 4,000 of them have been destroyed. 500 educational institutions have been destroyed across the country. And it's just the infrastructure facilities continue to get targeted by Russian artillery. And it's not a mistake when he strikes these people. It is not a mistake. I mean, I, I, I keep asking myself, like, why? Why is he doing this? You know, it, it has to be an accident. But when you see children painted on the top of a of a building from that you can see from satellite images, you know that's not a mistake because you know they're using intelligence information to target that. And those are locations that there are women and elderly and children inside. So it's this it's these old school Russian tactics of let's demoralize the population, maybe get them to convince their the Ukrainian leaders to um, come to the the negotiation table and accept whatever deal at any cost, and it's it's just going to get worse. Uh, Russia kicked out forty five so called diplomats from their embassy. Uh, the Poland did of uh, of the Russian embassy in Poland while they're sitting there, as you mentioned, lashing out of them in a blistering social media post. Uh, they were threatening them because so much aid and so many so many refugees are coming there and so much aid is coming from there. Uh, but if you're having problems with Ukraine, you'll have just as much problem with Poland. Compare that, Brett, to how you guys fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. If you guys hit a civilian, if you hit a school, it's by mistake. If you hit a mosque, my goodness. Uh, the world would have had a, a, there been a protest around the globe. They're actually targeting innocent people. I mean, how could a modern army be doing this? I just, I can't wrap my head around it. I just can't. I mean, that the, when we conduct strikes, I've conducted a number of different strikes from the air. We are very surgical, and mistakes do happen, but it's very, very rare. We use a lot of intelligence information to determine um, what we're looking at and make sure we're not striking civilians, um, and it's very, very surgical in what we do. But the Russians are just launching this barrage of artillery fire, and it's like they don't care. We we evacuated um, this, this family the other day outside of Kharkiv um, that has just been crushed. You talked about the apocalypse. That's what Kharkiv looks like, one of the, the second largest city in the country. And they were living in the woods. They weren't even in the city. They were outside the woods. And they stayed because they thought, hey, we're not going to get hit. You don't have to worry about the Russian coming. They're going to go through the city. They'll clear it. They'll do whatever. They'll leave us alone. Well, then the barrage of artillery started coming in through the woods in the middle of nowhere. Russian artillery destroying the homes around these people, and they realized they had to get out. And so that's the reality of the situation on the ground. There, there are a lot of indiscriminate attacks taking place. And if you really look at it, I think for years to come, this is, um, you know, this is going to be the death of Putin. I, I think years to come. Brett, what about uh, the idea that I have, and you told you reminded me of the company uh, that is called mm-hmm. Zipline to get mm-hmm. some drones and drop some aid into these in the Mariupols and others that are flat out starving of uh, starving to death. I mean, can we do that? Yeah, and if I, you lose a drone, we don't lose humanity? Exactly. We can absolutely do it. I'm a huge fan of Zipline. Um, they are um, do, dropping blood in you know Africa. They were doing stuff during COVID where they were dropping vaccines. They have the ability to drop food. I know they do. It's whether they have the uh, – it's, it's very costly to do it. But when they lose – 
a drone, it's not the end of the world. They just throw another one up in its place, and they have the ability literally to drop them on a specific GPS point. So um, I I hope, Brian, that you carry that message uh, going forward and maybe try and push the administration to work with Zipline or figure out a way to get in here to do that because it's needed. I mean, these residents, they, they're living days without food in their basement. They're stuck. They're stranded. And uh, we had a situation the other day outside of Kiev where uh, a neighbor walked out to get water. You ran out of water and you got shot. So, like, this is needed now. Uh, right. I just hope that companies like uh, Zipline could come and, and help out. I hear you. I called every number that I got from the brain room. Hopefully I'll get a call back today. Uh, Brett, thanks so much. Stay safe. Thank you, Brian. Take care. You got it. Uh, Brett Velikovich, now a Fox News contributor. Senator Marshall Blackburn next and Doug Collins. Don't move. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm asking, do you agree that schools should teach children that they can choose their gender? Senator, I'm not making comments about what schools can teach. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? Not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. The, of the fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we are hearing about. That is uh, Senator Blackburn. Let's ask her now. Was she surprised by that answer? Senator, were you surprised she would not talk about the difference between a man and a woman? I was very surprised, Brian. I expected her to give me her definition of a woman, a female, and she refused to do that. But, Brian, the thing is, this shows how deeply entrenched the left has become with these nominees for our courts, whether it's the federal district appellate courts or whether it's the Supreme Court. Now. Demand Justice, who is launching a huge campaign for Judge Jackson to place her on the Supreme Court, they've done a $1 million ad buy, $1 million, and they're trying to get her there. They want to expand the court. They want to add more justices. They are the ones who are going after some of what we call the pillars of our society. Uh, This is a very dangerous thing, and it is imperative that judges who come before us or individuals, if they've had no judicial experience, and they are trying to secure a place on the federal bench, a lifetime appointment, that we ask them these questions, that we look at how they have a what their value system is, what their worldview is, because all of that plays into their work that they do in judging people, judging a person's character, judging whether someone is telling them the truth or not. So she's going to be a uh, left of center Supreme Court justice if she gets approved and she's likely to get approved. Would you ever vote for somebody who's left of center anyway? No, I'm not going to um, 
vote for somebody who is left of center because that would mean that what they're doing is uh, outside of my belief system that judges who are on the Supreme Court should be constitutionalists. They should be looking at the text of the Constitution. That should be the first place that they go. The law should be the second place that they go. So you have uh, critical race theory. You have soft on crime overall as a major issue. Uh, what, what, besides the man and woman thing and packing the court, which you won't answer, what else do you want to get at today? You know, and I'll go back to some of those questions I asked her when she was up for an appellate position about a year ago. I asked her then about packing the court and about her judicial philosophy, and she would not answer those questions in that hearing. I'm also going to ask her more about how she has dealt with these child abusers and sex offenders. Because, as you know, Brian, I've put a tremendous amount of time and energy into trying to make certain that individuals can control their presence online, their privacy online, that we can protect children online. And to have someone who, during their time on the district court, repeatedly would go below the minimum sentence, not below the maximum not below what was recommended by the the prosecutor, go below what the minimum, the sentencing guidelines, below the minimum sentencing guidelines. This causes me great concern when you talk about keeping our children safe. Uh, I want you to hear what the risk is. You can really see this clear when you ask a question uh, of this Supreme Court justice because she's first African-American. And when uh, Ted Cruz brought this up about Judge Jackson and hate uh, Judge Jackson and critical race, cut 26. It's really ugly. I mean, quite frankly, it looked like I saw Ted Cruz commit a hate crime in that hearing room. The it was McCarthyism at its worst, where he was sort of insinuating that just because she was on this Georgetown uh, day school board that she's responsible for every little thing in every little book that's being written there. And he referred to the fact she's on the board and they have critical race theory there at a place that she said she had no idea. A hate crime? Final thought? Uh, the media, whether it's the Washington, Ti- Washington Post or the New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, they have beat up on me and a couple of my colleagues just continually and all sorts of terrible accusations. Our Senator, job good, good luck. To, yeah, good luck today. We'll watch it. Uh, just keep asking those questions. Uh, thanks so much. Doug Collins next. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The Iran deal was unpopular at the time. It will be massively unpopular now. I think, frankly, even Democrats in Congress will stop it if he doesn't in Iran deal. I think he has to reverse policy there. He has to reverse energy policy and really create a balance between transition, energy independence, and climate change that he hasn't had in his policy so far. So he's got to make these two other changes 
or she, frankly, is going to continue to deteriorate and lose the confidence of the American people. And that's Mark Penn, who who's worked for the Clintons uh, most of his life. Now he does more of a neutral, moderate uh, series of polls and tr- uh, does all his focus groups. Talking about this Iran deal, which is looming, which has been brokered by Russia, which is astounding. We shouldn't even be talking to them, let alone allow- allowing them to build a nuclear power plant for energy in Iran and take the nuclear waste. Doug Collins with me right now, former ranking member of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee. Uh, he's got a podcast. Uh, he's got a podcast now. Uh, and it is um, also author of a book, Clock in the Calendar, A Front Row Look at the Democrats' Obsession and Donald Trump. Uh, Doug, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be with you, Brian. So do you believe that Mark Pence saying that Democrats will get worried about this? I know some uh, didn't vote for it last time, but they didn't stop it because they didn't get 60 votes. But, you know, right. you had Cardin, you had Schumer, and Menendez vote against it. That was when you had 54 in the Senate. How are you supposed to get to 60 now? He's not going to get to 60. And this is what's been disturbing, and I agree with Mark on this. Democrats, the, the part that Democrats had a real struggle with this last time, the votes that you saw against it, went to the simple fact that any vote for Iran, any put siding with Iran, is a, is is basically considered – a, a vote that is for the destruction of Israel. And so this is uh, going to be even harder push this time. And frankly, it's sort of disturbing that the Biden administration following through on Obama 2.0 here is going after this deal again, because uh, the, the general consensus is that most people see Iran for the thug state that it is, you know, Hezbollah and, and uh, the rest that they fund terrorism all over the world. The, the narrative has been set now. I just, I mean, I think what they're going to try and do is to do this through executive order. They're going to try and do it through executive, you know, looking over. Because I just don't see how this thing gets through the, the Senate, especially if they try to bring it this term. And then, you know, it's just not going to happen. I, I mean, I don't know why you do it. Russia's brokering it. Listen to Jake Sullivan take this question uh, from a reporter yesterday. He's their national security advisor. And the worst. Cut 12. What does the president hope that Russia can bring to the Iran nuclear deal? One of the key roles that Russia played in uh, the implementation of that deal was that Russia actually accepted the enriched uranium from Iran so that Iran's stockpile, stockpile stayed below 300 kilograms total, meaning that stockpile was so small that Iran could not swiftly break out to a nuclear weapon. That is a key part of how we ensured that Iran's nuclear program was in a box. Now, we don't have to rely on any given country for any particular element of the deal, but that is a role that Russia played in the past, a practical role that didn't have necessarily political significance, but did have that practical significance. I mean, first off, can you, un- can you believe he's talking about Russia so intellectually, these people that are yeah. blindly murdering women and children, and we have tried to ostracize and isolate in the world? We're now praising them for their key role in this. Well, I mean, again, for, let's start off number one. I don't believe hardly anything Jake Sullivan says ever says his name when he actually is the one who is propagated the Russian dis, the Russian uh, you know dossier, the Russian disinformation, the whole uh, scandal of the of the Clintons. So, I mean, his credibility on most anything is shot. But the, did you catch the part in the line, though, Brian? And I think everybody needs to understand this. And I've been saying this from day one. And that is this Iran deal never stopped them from developing a nuclear weapon. It simply slowed it down. And notice what he said. 
He said that they took the, the enriched uranium so it would make sure that they couldn't automatically, very swiftly develop the weapon. In other words, they're going to develop a weapon. We're just trying to, to, to make friends here and to keep everything okay. We're not really truly being honest about the fact that we're stopping them from becoming part of the nuclear family. This is the part that is just so uh, deceivious by these two administrations, the Obama administration and now the Biden administration, that want to deal basically a deal with thugs. I mean, I, I don't get their – I mean, what is it about the, the fascination with Iran by this administration? Because you're also isolating – you're uh, alienating Israel. You're isolating yep. and alienating Saudi Arabia, Oman, UAE, Bahrain, most of the region, which allowed the Abraham Accords to take root. Now, Saudi Arabia doesn't return our calls now. <laughs> when we ask them to, to, uh, to pump more, which we shouldn't be asking them. We could ask Canada or do it ourselves. Yeah, it is, and it, that should that should be the statement that was you know that should be printed across the front of, of you know the the media is if uh, <laughs> countries won't take our call. The ones in the in the Middle East who again under Trump we had the Abraham Accords. We saw the, the the building up of Israel. We saw the building up of peace in that area, which he never got credit for. And now the Biden administration is coming in and actually going to the very antithesis of that region. I mean, look, there's a lot of problems with a lot of those countries in that part of the world with the way they handle their human rights and everything else. But you're going to a country that even the guys who are sketchy say, they're sketchy. We don't want any part of dealing with Iran. And, and again, my first and foremost statement is, why are we dealing with a country in, in trying to do something that, number one, they're not going to do, that we're not saying they're not ever going to have a weapon. We're just, quote, trying to slow them down who will not go on record and say Israel has an absolute right to exist. Why are we even going at this? Uh, I'm not sure, uh, but do you have a weak leader in uh, Israel right now? You don't have Netanyahu speaking his mind on a regular basis who would come and address Congress when Barack Obama tried to sell him down the river uh, and disrespect him before years. And I don't know who this guy Bennett is, but he doesn't have much street cred, and he's not standing up to for his own country because it's not in their national interest to allow this to take place. They're going to deal with the Iranian National Guard and take them off the terror watch list, so that's nuts. I want you to hear uh, Dmitry Peskov. Tell me if this would concern you, which should concern our listeners. He is the, the Kremlin spokesperson, cut to. And I want to know whether Putin intends the world to be afraid of the nuclear option. Would he use it? Well, we have a concept of uh, domestic security. And, uh, well, it's public, you can read all the reasons for nuclear uh, arms to be used. So if it is an ex existential threat for our country, then it can be used in accordance with our concept. Are they going to look at Ukraine, the Nazis, as they claim, as a yeah. threat to their country? Well, I, Brian, I think what he's done here is, is exactly what... Russia and Putin want the world to think. They're throwing it out there. It's the way you say something that matters. And the way he said that was, it's just like every other country in the world, including the U.S., says, if you existentially threaten us where we think we're going to be uh, beat or captured, we're going to use everything we have. But the way you say that is, is in a different way. What he was is implying, well, you know, he's being coy. And saying, well, you know, if it's an existential threat, we've already said they were committing. I mean, they've already said they're committing genocide and everything else. So I think he's just trying to keep that terror element out there. Um, and, and the way they say it, they're, they're masters at propaganda. Uh, no question. And uh, are you a part of the wing of the party, uh, conservative party, that does not believe that we should be doing what we're doing? 
uh, in Ukraine, or do you think we should be doing more, or do you like the way uh, President uh, Biden has handled it to this point? I think at this point we should have done, number one, We I think there was a problem, and we got to get it to the point of something, why Biden administration dilly-dallied before there was ever an invasion. After they said there was going to be one, we should have got more uh, older Russian equipment in there and everything else. I think you supply the Ukrainians to keep this as they'll make. But then my next point is, where is the conversation with Biden and others in the world to bring these two folks to the table to find a solution to stop this. That's becoming my biggest concern here, is, is, is holding account however we can to get Putin to the table, to get Zelensky, who said he wants to be on the table at this, and get them to, 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 to give a peace or a, a thing, because it's becoming a, a stalemate, and that's, that's going to just drag on. Um, so I'm looking for getting them the help they need, but at the same point also saying, hey, we got to fix this. So do you believe that they invade if Trump's president? I'm sorry. Do you believe they invade if Trump's president? No, no, I don't think they ever would. I, and I've said this before. Look, Donald Trump did something that the world stage had not seen in a long time. And, and frankly, the last time they saw it from an American leader was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan said what he said and meant what he said. Trump said what he said meant what he said. And for the first time in, in the long time, they looked around and they said, we don't want to do anything because we honestly don't know what Trump's going to do. And if you remember when we killed Soleimani, uh, took out Soleimani, the Iranians, you know, pitched a fit, said we're going to exact revenge. Donald Trump said, "I wouldn't do that if I were you." And they sent this weak little response that they telegraphed. They didn't know what Donald Trump was going to do. There is something to be said about fearing a, a strong uh, leader who you're really not mm-hmm. sure what they're going to do. So, Doug, you ran for, for the Senate. You did not get the nomination. Yep. Uh, Kelly Loeffler did. She lost uh, famously. Now the seats opened up. And Herschel Walker is leading the field by a significant amount, and he's got the endorsement of Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. Does he have yours? Yeah, I mean, no, Gary Black is a, is a good friend of mine, and I, and I publicly endorsed Gary uh, that long time ago before you know Herschel finalized him getting in the race. Um, Gary helped me a great deal in my Senate campaign, and I'm, I'm a loyal person. I think Herschel has a very strong chance to win. I like Herschel. Herschel's a friend uh, that I've known for a while. But Herschel, I will say this, Herschel needs to get out – and meet the public. Herschel needs to get out and campaign. His numbers are, you know, coming, uh, getting back into line a little bit, but he's got to get out and campaign because in the fall, the press, the media, no one is going to cut him any slack because of his celebrity status. The Democrats will try to take him out, and he's got to get out and, and be prepared for what is coming in the fall. So you don't think he's on the streets enough? I know he's raising money, but you don't see him in Georgia enough. No, and right now that's part of the problem. He's not doing a lot of interviews. He's not. He's, he said he will not debate any of the Republican candidates in the field. He will not do any, you know, tournament appearances. So I think right now, my only thing is, is it's just like Brian doing radio, doing TV, doing interviews, doing anything. Do you yes. got you got to prepare, and and it, and it's not just something that you naturally acquire if you're not used to those kind of questions that will be dissected every part. So my hope is he gets out there and does it. If he gets the nomination, which it looks like he is that he'll do that, and then we'll take on Warnock in the fall. Yeah, I just know one thing. You don't get into an octagon in the UFC unless you train. He knows you, yep. don't, you, know, you, don't, you don't get 1,000 <laughs> yards unless you train. Everything yep. done before the season. So I, w- I think we got to talk to you. you got to talk to him in that language. Uh, this yep. is training. And, and if you don't train well, to be a, don't be afraid to make a mistake. Because we know the one thing. You could fumble the ball and you have another play. Sometimes you make yep. a mistake on the stump, and it haunts you your entire run. Correct? Right. Well, the question is, though, is would you rather make that – would you rather have a, a sort of, if you would say, a gaffe now 
or would you rather or would you rather get hit with it in October? I, I hear mean, you. It, look, it, that's what you got to be a part of. And, and and someone who's done this for years and trained candidates and helped candidates all over the country, including myself, you've got to know how to handle 50 cameras with questions being thrown at you, and they take every ounce of your answer to use against you. Great point, great advice, uh, because that seat has cost so much to this country. Yeah. And if it wasn't for Joe Manchin, it could have been so much worse. And Kristen Cinema. Uh, thanks so much. Th- thanks, Doug. Where do we get your podcast? Uh, the Doug Collins Podcast.com. You can go look it up. Doug Collins Podcast.com, anywhere you get podcasts. Go get them. Thanks so much. 1 866 408 7669. We're going to come back and take some calls. Uh, we're coming to you. We have a lot to discuss. We're still so far uh, following the um, Judge Jackson. Uh, hearings that go on forever. It's more like a law class. It's always educational. Good to hear. I just wish we were at a place where these judges can give real answers. We have answers that are geared towards survival. Brian Kilmeade Show. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think initially he was at 50%. I think people were approving that he didn't get us into a war. But ultimately, more people think that if Trump had been president, that Putin would not have moved into the Ukraine. And now they see that Biden, they feel, is not really pushing through the crisis. He's not really providing American leadership at a time of global crisis. And he's got to step up to that. Or, or the ratings here are going to drag them down along with the rest of the ratings. And that is Mark Penn, uh, time Clinton pollster, very respected. And I don't, you know, I don't see Joe Biden leading. Do you see him leading? I don't, I don't see anybody leading. I see uh, pledges of money, and I saw predictions, dire predictions that Ukraine wouldn't even last, and a CIA that over or or an intelligence apparatus that oversold Russian military might. And they are a shell of what they were. And there's got to be some panic amongst the Russians. And there's got to be some unrest at the highest echelon of, um, of uh, Russian power. It makes me wonder if there's more to know. More to know. I love this. Bill Maher's been saying things that really make sense because he's coming from the left. It's what a lot of us think, but we're very surprised to hear it from him. For example, on California, high taxes, high homeless. Uh, low quality of life, great scenery. What's that going to mean for the future of the state? Listen. We know there's been an exodus from this state, and that's partly because of high taxes. It's partly because fire season is all year round. But it's also because people can't do anything. And eventually, what are they going to say is, then f*** to the Democratic Party. This Mm -hmm. is an Achilles heel to this party that they have got to come to terms with. People have got to understand There are just too many people with their hand out. There are too many people who are unnecessary in this equation. This is kind of like beyond politics, or it should be, but it's going to get hung on, and deservedly so, on the Democrats because they run this state. And the way they ran it during the pandemic is sinful. Too many people with their hand out. Typical Republican response. Oops, it isn't. It's a liberal response. Get to work. You know if you can't. You know if you need it. You know if you have legitimate disability. Everybody else, get to work. Uh, or there's plenty of other states that do, don't want to take all your money. Even celebrities and athletes, they work hard to get their money. They could afford to be in California. Many of them saying the hell with that. I'll go to Florida next. 
Tipping is a legacy of slavery. I've never said that, but guess who does? Nicole Hannah-Jones, 1619 Project. She's a New York Times reporter. She said tipping is a legacy of slavery. It's not optional. Then it shouldn't be a tip, but included in the bill. Have you ever stopped to think why tip? Like you, why tipping is a practice of the U.S.? Yeah, I think why tip. You never can tell me this is slavery. You know why you tip? For great service. It shows if you work hard and you do good service and you get some loyalty, people like to show you that and go beyond the bill. That is the fundamental look at capitalism. Do you believe this? It just shows how unworldly she is. Because then she also tweeted, have you ever stopped to think why we tip? Like, why tipping is a practice in the U.S. and almost nowhere else? Have you ever traveled to a country where you don't tip for service? Service It's horrible. It's absolutely horrific. It's a way of keeping people accountable. Why do a lot of people look for extra money by waitering and bartending? Because you have a chance to use your personality and your hustle to get additional money. And it benefits everybody. It benefits the restaurant owner, the bar owner. You get it. And finally... Uh, this story, I think, is special. Donald Trump Jr. and former President Trump spokesperson Taylor Butterwich, I never heard of him, uh, is launching a free mobile news aggregation app, which will help people get trustworthy news and information about topics that matter and impact their lives. Quote, we view this as an important public service and also believe it will be a great business. MXM will be available at launch on Apple's iOS, Google, and Android operating system. What do you think? I hope it like comes what up they and running do as, as good news. Well, right? I, I would agree with that. I hope it just you know goes up and running smoothly. Maybe a little smoother than uh, President Trump's social network. Yeah, how is that going? I, I haven't heard anything about it. <laughs> Fox Nation is now available on Direct TV. So I tell you, it's a great app. Now you can get it on Direct TV. Pretty cool. And watch more of you. Right, and that's really what the goal is. By the way, more of me Saturday night at eight o'clock and eleven, Fox News Channel. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Carl Rove standing by, Trace Gallagher at the bottom of the hour, filling in for Bill Hemmer this week, uh, but he's filling all over the channel, doing great war coverage overnight, which is primetime uh, for uh, the West Coast as well as in uh, Ukraine. I'll bring you the latest on that and uh, also... Uh, bringing the latest on what's happening domestically as we see Judge Jackson try to become the next Supreme Court justice. Uh, before we get to Carl, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The governor and I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do. Unbelievable, right? Uh, Kamala's catastrophic public appearances, just like you just heard, are only exceeded by what she is like behind the scenes. This according to a new book of the New York Times writers, as she loses her 10th staffer, blames everyone but herself. But this, there were clues to her ineptness as a candidate and a senator. We'll talk about that. And where Joe and Harris stand as the polls are eight months from the midterms. Number two. We believe that if there is an Iran nuclear deal that meets the standards the president has set to verifiably block the pathway of Iran to get to a nuclear weapon, we will do that deal uh, because we believe it is in the American national security interest to do so. Uh, Jake Sullivan's the worst. Uh, The Iran deal about done, and it's worse than you can think. It threatened to destabilize another region as if Europe and Afghanistan weren't enough for them. 
This can be done. This can be stopped. It has to be stopped. We'll discuss it. Number one. And I want to know whether Putin intends the world to be afraid of the nuclear option. Would he use it? So if it is an existential threat for our country, then it can be used in accordance with our concept. Do you believe this? Dmitry Peskov. Oh, yeah, that mutual assured destruction. Uh, not good enough for him. The war, Ukraine moves uh, to take back territory around the capital. But in Maripol, apoplectic, apoplectic uh, death and cruelty uh, and no surrender from the Ukrainians. Yep, a frustrated Vladimir Putin and his henchmen threaten nuclear war because they can't win it on the ground. They are not what they were billed to be and what intelligence told us they were. Carl Rove joins me now. Carl. How shocked are you that we're coming up on 30 days and it looks like the Russians uh, are as, as inept a fighting force as we have seen? Uh, well, I, first of all, I'm amazed. Uh, but I'm, I'm amazed at two things. One is how ill-prepared uh, and badly led uh, and poor execution we've seen from the Russians, uh, which means that um, 10 or 15 percent of their forces are either dead or wounded or out of action and poor morale and poor and dreadful supplies and logistics. But I'll tell you what I'm really amazed at is the heroism of not just the Ukrainian military, but the Ukrainian people. The From Zelensky, who is a modern-day Winston Churchill, all the way down, this is a remarkable story of a country standing up with one voice and one will and one determination, which is to fight through to victory. I just don't understand why Mitch McConnell's got to be the one to say we have to hold out. They can win. Why does what's the downside of Jake Sullivan and the president saying the Ukrainians can prevail here? We have to do everything for them to be successful. Is there a downside to that? I don't understand why the administration has not uh, stood in unison with the Ukrainians and say we, we will fight on to victory. Uh, the, 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 clearly, the Ukrainian people feel that way. And for us not to – I mean, what, what do we get out of this? Do we really think that we're affecting the psyche of Vladimir Putin? And he says, you know what, I'm really grateful that Jake Sullivan uh, seems to be tepid in his support. And, you know, geez, I'm really glad that – that uh, Joe Biden has never said, uh, you know, victory. I'm upset with him about saying I'm a war criminal. So let's send my little toad, Sergei Lavrov, my foreign minister out there to, to you know, to attack the president of the United States for saying ugly things. So maybe he won't say them again. I mean, come on. Uh, I mean, the Ukrainian people, the morale matters, and, and giving them weapons matters a lot. But so does the word of the United States, and the president of the United States, in my opinion, should be more forthcoming. So I want you to hear what General Jack Keane said the president should be focused on as he heads to a, an emergency NATO summit. Cut seven. Clearly, we've got to put more troops in Eastern Europe. We're going to have to stay there longer than anybody expected because of this particular threat with Putin. And we've got to man up to do all of that. And, and we've got to get those kind of commitments out of, out of the NATO members. And finally, I mean, there's a humanitarian assistance crisis developing here. We've got to use some imagination and also some spine to deal with this, to be able to bring convoys in to assist the people in these cities that are going to go through this catastrophe, or a Berlin-type airlift to do it, and warn Putin without equivocation, if he interferes with it, we'll have to make, make sure the convoys in the Berlin airlift gets through. So— 
That is true. Uh, they just took two buses and the 15 uh, humanitarian workers hostage, and they took the buses full of food and drinks. Why can't we be more imaginative? Why are we not dropping this uh, uh, food and water from, from drones? Yeah, look, uh, all hands on deck. And, uh, you know, they're, they're one of the reasons the Russians are taking uh, the, the food and drink is that they can't – is that their military is failing to provide them from with food and drink. Think about this. We have literally Russian units living off the land by breaking into local grocery stores and homes in search of food and water. And it shows the desperate straits that the Russians are in, but it also shows the kind of conditions that the Ukrainian people are living in. This is a country of 42, 44 million people, and an estimated 10 million of them have already been moved out of their homes and dispossessed. And several million are now, I think it's four or five million, are, are, are now mostly women and men. Excuse me, women and children are, are now exile, living in exile, in many of them in Poland. I had a friend, uh, Paul Fleming, the restaurateur, who, who went over to the Polish border, the Polish-Ukrainian border, to help set up food kitchens. He was astonished at the volume of, of refugees coming across the border and how few of them were men, including old men. Old men are not conscripted, are not you know, responsible for duty, but he said in one day he saw maybe two older men, clearly infirm, who came across with this with this vast you know sea of women and children uh, flooding across the border. Uh, they want to fight, and and they a couple of things. I don't know if you know the names. You seem to know everybody, but uh, this story just crossed. Our Russian climate envoy Antolio Shubas has stepped down and left the country, citing his opposition to Vladimir Putin. That, according to two people, uh, he's one of the few 1990s-era economic reformers who remained in Putin's government. So he's gone. And you mentioned 14,000 have left since this war began, a lot of which went over to Turkey. So they're gone. Uh, I don't trust the intelligence people as much as respect as I have for them individually, collectively. They oversold the Russian military, and they undersold what Ukraine was capable of. Carl, we all heard the reports. Zelensky was going to be dead in a couple of days, and they were going to fall within a week. How could they be so wrong? Well, look, because we, we, we you know, you have to make determination based on, on the best information possible. And, and the, the best information in this situation is execution. We have not seen the Russians execute since Grozny, since Chechnya. And, and that was many years ago. Syria. And, you know. Uh, well, in Syria, Syria was a different kind of a thing because it was air power against somebody without air defenses, and it was also a highly um, organized, highly trained uh, group of mercenaries. And we saw how good they were when they came up against the United States. They may have been good coming up against, you know, Syrian auxiliaries and, and insurgents, but when they came up against the United States military, they died. But look, I'm not going to condemn the military because they looked at what was there on paper and made judgments about what what that kind of training, that kind of equipment. But what what the, in war, in the intangible is is who has momentum, and momentum is generated by morale. And it turned out that the Russians had sent into battle first new conscripts who were not told what the mission was and not explained why it was important to the motherland. And on the other side, the Ukrainians, they knew what they were fighting for. They were fighting for their national survival. 
and their freedom and their liberty and their their future as a country tied to the West, not a, a vassal state of, of Russia. And that intangible is hard to predict until it actually emerges. Yeah. Let's hope it sustains itself. I mean, human beings are human beings. And after 30 days of stretching every nerve and every muscle in defense of their country, the people of Ukraine have got to be tired, and, and and they need our support morally and and in material ways, uh, mightily. But but materially is is critical. But their own morale is vital. That's that's what's kept them in this fight. Imagine and Zelensky, and they fed off Zelensky, unlike Ghani, who leaves the country first with all our money, uh, and kicked off half his A's off the helicopter, according to intelligence. Uh, this yeah. guy stays and says, "Don't even think about sending me a plane." So we misjudge that. I just hope, and I don't think anybody I've talked to knows the answer to, I hope the stuff that we're paying for is getting to them, excluding that S-300 system that should have been in place before this conflict, which we predicted was going to happen. Those MiGs should have been in country before this happened. There would have been absolutely no controversy to that. Uh, but instead, we wait and after, and now we're, we're reacting. But we've unified NATO, which is great. We've unified the European Union, which is fantastic. The Russians didn't want a big presence on their border. Now they got a bigger presence on their border. And Ukraine is making it clear, we want Europe, we don't want you. Just because we speak Russian doesn't mean we want to be Russian. Carl, the other thing is looming, which I know has you concerned, as it does me, is this Iranian deal brokered by the Russians on our behalf. Listen to what Mark Penn said about the chances of this really blowing up, not only in the world, but on Democrats. The Iran deal was unpopular at the time. It will be massively unpopular now. I think, frankly, even Democrats in Congress will stop it if he mm. doesn't in Iran deal. <clears throat> I think he has to reverse policy there. He has to reverse energy policy and really create a balance between transition, energy independence, and climate change that he hasn't had in his policy so far. So he's got to make these two other changes, or he, frankly, is going to continue to deteriorate and lose the confidence of the American people. You know how bad this deal is. You know there's only going to be a few years left on it if it, in fact, is reenacted. Uh, and, you know, it's even going to be weaker. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, uh, it, it is absolutely essential that, that the United States Senate demand that this agreement uh, be subject to Senate approval. This is a treaty, a treaty with far-reaching consequences. And if if the United States Senate does not take this up as a matter and and consider it, then the Senate, then one of the most critical powers of the Senate will have been eviscerated. Second of all, look at what's happening in the Middle East. The great relationships that we had in the region have been undermined almost systematically since the beginning of the Biden administration. Our relationship with Israel is no, no longer as good as it was. Our relationship with the UAE and the Saudis is no longer as good as it was, because in part because we seem more interested in placating the Iranians than we are in standing up to the Iranians. So absolutely, the, the, you know, we, the devil is in the details. The details were not particularly good under Obama. I'm not convinced that they're going to be particularly better under under Biden. But the United States Senate is the place where that that ought to be discussed and debated, and this must be submitted as a treaty. Otherwise, uh, the United States Senate's power is eviscerated, and uh, more power then is, is subsumed in the in, in the in the, uh, in the in the individual of the president. Well, the thing is now they got to get 60 votes to disavow it, and they got 58 last time with 54 Republican senators. 
uh, and that was Schumer, Cardin, and Menendez, and no proof they would have done that if they thought it would have changed whether that that treaty went into play, that treaty, but that document went into place. So I don't know, besides the 49 Republicans, do you know anybody that's going to come against this terrible deal that might be pro-Israel, like Menendez, Schumer, and Cardin again? Well, it won't be Schumer because he's now the leader. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Cardin and Menendez, and, and I might also not be surprised if some of these vulnerable Democrats who are up this year, uh, you know, Cortez Mastow in in, uh, in Nevada, uh, you know, Maggie Hassan in in New Hampshire, wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised. And, and some of the 2024 types, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't stand up and say, you know what, this is not in our interest, or we should have it brought before the Senate and debated. So there's, been, there's a story uh, coming up from New York to two New York Times writers and how bad things are with Kamala Harris. She's upset that she was given impossible tasks, her words, on the border and on voting rights. And what they say, the meetings that they have weekly, we, the president and vice president are cordial. They're not personal, like he evidently has with other people. And he says she's not getting uh, fair press, can't keep staffers, uh, is very disorganized. And Kate Benningfield did, did not deny that she said behind the scenes that there were clues. These are her problems, the same problems she has as a senator and a candidate. She said, well, no one ever asked me to confirm those. That's basically saying it's happening. I want you to hear her latest statement. Uh, this was in the library where she had to make some impromptu comments like most vice presidents have. Cut 14. The governor and I, and we were all... Um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children. Okay, what's your takeaway from that? Uh, I'm mystified. What planet was she on at that moment? Uh, look, look, there is a reason why Mary Anna Williamson and Joaquin Castro and Pete Buttigieg and half a dozen other people whose names you and I can't recall at this moment lasted longer in the Democratic presidential sweepstakes in 2020 than she did. And that's because she's a terrible candidate. She was a dreadful senator. She's a one-trick pony. I am the, I'm the tough-nosed prosecutor asking you a nasty question. She doesn't do her homework. She has got a big ego. She's got sharp edges. She's difficult to work with and work for. And she is a terrible vice president. What has she done on the uh, border? Well, it, it, it was in revealing in the Martin and... Uh, Burns book, apparently, she she refused to, to, to say that she was responsible for the border she or immigration. She was responsible for the Northern Triangle, meaning the country's... Carl Central- Rove, thanks so much. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, we got a few minutes here uh, with Trace Gallagher. He's going to have a real segment right after we get back. Trace Gallagher to do an overnight through the war coverage, which is 9 to noon there in California, where he insists on living, which is weird. Uh, and now he is uh, filling in for Bill Hemmer, which is, is it good work with Dana Perino? I hear she can do there's a real dark side to her. She's a lot, Brian. Uh, I mean, you know, really. But listen, somebody's got to do it, and uh, they flew me out here to do it, and so I've got to sit there. Right. No, and, she's a, she is a uh, joy. Are you kidding me? Dana Perino is the nicest woman on the planet, as you know. 
and she's uh, she is an absolute princess when it comes to working with somebody. So we're covering the war. We're covering this. Uh, we're covering the, what's happening with uh, Judge Jackson right now. We'll mm-hmm. see if she becomes Supreme Court Judge uh, Jackson. And we're also uh, following what's happening with the President of the United States heading over to Brussels emergency NATO meeting. Anything else going on that we could fill time with? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, but you know, the whole the whole concept of this Biden trip, I think, is a big deal because nobody knows if he's going to get anything from it. You know, we had a guest on a couple of hours ago who said, listen, the whole thing is you don't go to Brussels unless you have a bird in the hand, unless you are going to walk away with some kind of victory. You just don't do it. And will he look like a leader or one of the pack? Uh, I know most presidents would like to look as a leader. It seems like he prefers to be one of the pack. I want him to pledge victory. I want to do what I can to hear you see Ukraine win. I'd love to hear that, Trace. When we come back, I'm going to hear what you have to say about what I said. Hopefully you'll agree. It is my show. It is your show. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. We know there's been an exodus from this state. Now, that's partly because of high taxes. It's partly because fire season is all year round. But it's also because people can't do anything. And eventually, what are they going to say is, than f- to the Democratic Party. This mm-hmm. is an Achilles heel to this party that they have got to come to terms with. People have got to understand there are just too many people with their hand out. There are too many people who are unnecessary in this equation. This is kind of like beyond politics, or it should be, but it's going to get hung on, and deservedly so, on the Democrats because they run this state. So Bill Maher speaking out again, surprising many on Adam Carolla's podcast. Adam obviously uh, leans conservative. Bill Maher has always been to the left, but speaking so rationally and reasonably now. And it's been heartening. And he's just one of many who have realized, maybe drunk with anger on Donald Trump, and said the direction we've gone since, not good. Trace Gallagher here who calls the West Coast home. Is he speaking as as a uh, majority of one, or does he speak for others? I think he speaks for a lot of others. I mean, people are tired. Listen, you know, there's no chance that California is going to turn red at any time in in the near future, but people are fed up. When you look at San Francisco, where they are legitimately probably going to recall Chase Boudin, who is their far-left prosecutor, that's stunning. 75% of the population in San Francisco is liberal. And it's got the most liberal policies on the planet, and they're proud of that. They're proud of the fact they got all these homeless people, that you've got all of these problems with, you know, embarcaderos, people, the homeless, you know, uh, defecating on the sidewalks. They're proud of it. They're not proud of the crime. They're not proud of where the direction of, of the city is going and California is following as a state. And you say in Los Angeles when you drive to work, you see how many homeless in campus? Sixteen. And I counted them because I saw so many. I thought, well, it's kind of ridiculous, but it, how many are there? So I drive nine miles to the studios and 16 homeless encampments. And we're talking about major roads. On the side of the roads, there are campers, old, you know, dilapidated campers that have become these homeless little uh, areas. And then you, under every freeway underpass, you've got these tents under all the river sides. You've got all these homeless encampments. And sometimes they take them down. 48 hours later, they're right back up. So I hear Governor Newsom does not have any legitimate 
competition to run get another four years as governor. No, the recall was was uh, you know articulated that to the end. You know, you had Larry Elder, and he was popular, but not nearly popular enough to have Gavin Newsom recalled. There's no competition. There's zero competition on the right for this. So Gavin Newsom will be automatically you know put back into office. But I can tell you now that even on you know even on and places like like West Hollywood and stuff, people are tired of the way things are going. They're not about to leave the state. A lot of people are, but they're not about to leave the state. But they're about to, you know, to, to make it clear that, that they want the schools to change. They want the homeless situation to change. They want the tax structure to change. They want things to start happening where it doesn't kill them. I mean, you know, state tax, we talk about people going to Florida, zero state tax. California is now the highest rate at 13%. That's the state tax. It's incredible. The highest gas prices, the highest housing prices, the highest tax prices. It's, you know, it is, it's a diversified state. Right. It's got beautiful, you know, amenities, the beaches and the mountains and the deserts. It's got everything you want, but the state itself is really problematic to live in. Right. And the thing is, is uh, a lot of it started out there and now they're upset about it. You know, a lot of the rich and famous, the, I've said, you know, you got to open up your arms. Remember Martin Sheen, you were... Yep in the 1980s, said, come stay on my lawn in Malibu. We should have an open arms to this. But now you see the violent homeless, and I see it here in New York. So instead of, like, your heart going out, look at that person on bad times, you go, wait a second, that, they were throwing you on the tracks. They're coming up to you from behind. Yep. They're punching women in the face. There was a six-year-old that got punched in the face the other day, a child. That, I mean, this is mentally deranged people. My heart is not out to them. I'm sorry. No, and that's exactly what people are saying. They're pushing back, saying we have violence at levels we have never seen. And it's not just the, the violent people who are raising attention. It's the people walking into homes and walking into stores and stealing all this stuff, and there are zero consequences. And we cater to this. I mean, you know, Gavin Newsom in the state says, if you are an illegal immigrant, come, we'll give you health care. We'll give you a free cable. You know, we'll give you a job. We're going to get you set up. And you think, well, that is what's that's that's part and parcel of what's happening is that California has become such a permissive society willing to, you know, you can smoke pot, you can shoot uh, heroin on the streets. Nobody cares. You can come across illegally. There are no consequences. You can walk in. You can steal whatever you want, whenever you want. And, you know, it's. It's Sodom and Gomorrah in California. And the thing is, you don't have to say, Trace Gallagher, I'm leaving America. You say, I'm going to another state. I'm going to go someplace where there is some sense of law and order. And my hope, and a lot of them in California, the stats say Texas. Uh, In New York, the stats say Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina. And their answer is oftentimes, don't screw up here. Leave your politics where you you left. Right. But, you know, a lot of people are... Not to, not to take a, a page from Ukraine, but a lot of people in California are like, screw it. I'm not letting them push me out. I am not going to let them push me out. I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight. The only way that you can get better is you've got to stay and you can fight. It's not going to be a red state. I get that. But somebody has to stand around and, and say no to the next tax hike. Say no to the next time we put up a homeless shelter, you know, next to a, to a, a neighborhood. Nixon was governor there, a Republican. Reagan was governor there, a Republican. Pete Wilson, when I was out there, was finishing up. 
as a Republican. Right. Uh, there was a once Governor Schwarzenegger was a Republican, and I asked you before the chances of Republicans. You said almost zero. Zero. There, there's no presence. They no. Fe- they fell off a cliff there, and they threw up the white flag. It seems. I mean, unless you have a big Hollywood star that comes out as a Republican, then California can shift because that's kind of the nature of the beast out there. So Schwarzenegger was Clint a, a big movie. Clint Eastwood. If Clint Eastwood was to run for governor, he's 92, 93 years old, whatever it is. But had he decided to run for governor 10, 15 years ago? Maybe. But you need a name like that who is conservative to re, to break the ice because there's not there's your run of the mill Republican? No. Never going to happen. What about a Gutfeld? Is he big enough to be to be governor? Maybe Gutfeld. Maybe right. Gutfeld, but uh, yeah, governor of Studio H. Right. That's all about, That's he'd be the only guy who had no interest in his state, right? <laughs> right. He'd be like every day. It's like, why do I? Why do you keep hitting me with these problems? I don't have a show to do. Right. Why did I run for this? I thought it'd be fun to run. I didn't know I'd win. Oh, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I was on Gutfeld last night, and it's uh, you know, it's it's actually super fun to do. You got a lot of people out there in Gutfeld. I told him, I said, I I discovered you. Which I did. How? I Because back, back in the day when I was living here, I did a show called Studio B Weekend, and Roger Ailes called me, and he said, hey, I'm sending this guy down, Gutfeld. Uh, put him on. Put him on. I, I hear he's really funny and a little political. Well, he turned out to be really political and a little funny. Right. And so <laughs> we put him on, and he was just torching Hillary Clinton. And I told him, I said, Greg, I, you know, if you're going to say that Hillary Clinton has given John Gotti orders, you need to have a little bit of evidence to that. He's like, I I, I prove so I told Roger, I said, Roger, we need to at least balance this guy, you know, for he's a he's a flamethrower. But I told Greg, I said, come on, I was the first show you were on. And now you've got nine shows and your hack buddy's got to beg to get on your show. Right. And, you know, it's a lack of grace. That's typical of Gutfeld. Right. It's like once he gets a trace Gallagher, can't even get him on the phone. Right. Right. I, I've called him 15 times. He's like, who can't is get through. this guy? Right. Can't, you can't get through. Who is this guy? I'll put him on my panel. He keeps calling <laughs> me. So uh, back to what you – and you did great war coverage over the night because – and I know that. I'm not just saying it because I'm up when you're on. And normally it's a, you know, it's a repeat of Laura Ingram into Fox and Friends first. Right. So I'm listening to your coverage. We've been 24 hours really since this war started. Right. So – I want to hear this. You know, we were talking about what bro- the message in Brussels has to be mm-hmm. and what a leader sounds like. Zelensky is a leader. Yeah. Right. The, what he's saying without notes, we can appreciate that yep. when it comes from the heart. And also understanding your audience, understanding I got to speak to the Japanese parliament. I got to speak to Canada, UK, Germany. He spoke to uh, Italy. So it's been fantastic. So this is what I want to hear. From a guy I never expected to be inspired by, but I, so as soon as I heard this Sunday, I go, this is what's missing. Our posture should be um, to win, to help the Ukrainians actually win. Generally speaking, the administration has tried to do the right thing, but never soon enough. And we need to step up the pace, not act at the speed of bureaucracy, and help our Ukrainian friends as rapidly as possible. That's simple. They've earned the right to get our backing and that be right. our objective. So what does it take for them to win? Well, it takes a lot for them to win. And a lot of people, a lot of military analysts will tell you they are in a lot of capacities winning. Russia, if the, if the goal of Russia is to decimate Ukraine, they're doing very well. If the goal of Russia is to win this war, they're not doing as well. And that's the problem. Trace, is this astounding to you that a country that's been at war for hundreds of years – 
started this campaign without one commanding officer, right. without somebody saying this is our plan. I remember we, we've talked to these generals and General Keene and others and General Perkins, and they say, we don't understand who's in charge. We don't understand where they're coming from, five different directions. 150,000 troops in a country this size is not going to work. We don't know what they're thinking. And after a day or two, and they realize they don't know what they're thinking, right. and the communication didn't travel with them. They're feeding off the cell service and the Wi-Fi of the uh, of the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians can control it. They wiped out the, the Russian prefixes. Yep. So now they're stealing phones from the Ukrainians to be able to talk to each other. 10,000 Russian soldiers, and this was Pravda that put this out. Almost 10,000 Russian soldiers killed so far in this campaign. Pravda put it out, which is a Kremlin newspaper, and they put it out, and it was gone immediately because the Russian government's like, what in the world was that? That is the kind of stuff that wins hearts and minds in Russia that's saying this is ridiculous. 10,000, the war is a mess. Every tactical possible mistake they could make, they have made, and nobody knows quite why. Now, they've got this aerial assault, and they've got their clearly... Ukraine is clearly outmanned, and they're getting bombarded from the skies. But if they could control the skies a little better, they could win this war. Oh, you mean getting these MiG fighters who know how to fly? Right. Get the MiG fighters. And I talked to a guy because you hear a lot of people say, well, you know, Russia's got hundreds of these MiG fighters. And they said, okay, and Ukraine's got like 24. Okay, but give them 28 more. Russia's only flying a few sorties a day. Give them 28 more and they can put up 30 at a time. Right. And they can at least be competitive in the skies. That's all they're trying. That's all they're saying. And even though Russia is firing a lot of these missiles from Russia and not coming into Ukraine, at least Ukraine can be competitive, which is all they're asking. And I've asked the question now for a month. What's the difference between giving Ukraine a fighter jet or an anti-aircraft weapon that can knock something out of the sky? Either take it out of the sky from the ground or take it out of the sky from the air. What's the difference? And nobody has a good answer. So it's a political. It's a timidity that I just can't get my head around, especially when you have three prime ministers from Eastern European countries Go in the middle of Kiev right. just to show Zelensky uh, what they, they, they have steel in their spine because he does. Right. And that would you imagine if I mean, I'm not I know he's 78 years old and not moving well. But President Biden is not going to get touched if he goes into Kiev because they know they will be Vladimir Putin would be wiped out the next day. But right. what a symbol that would be. Right. But um, he's got to come away with something. Brian. The whole thing is you go to Brussels and we talked about this earlier. He's got to come away with something. He can't just go there because this is, you know, Mitch McConnell made a good point. They've been late at every step, late on the sanctions, late on the weapons, late on every decision, late on on, you know, cutting off the oil supply from Russia. At every step, this administration has been late. Afghanistan, the same thing. They were late at every turn. And, and Mitch McConnell makes a good point. They're trying to make the right decisions. But they're behind the eight ball every single time. All right, I just want you to hear General Stephen Twitty of MSNBC, on MSNBC just talk about what he assesses Russia's strengths are. Cut 10. Every single city that he takes, you have to keep boots on the ground at all of those cities. If you don't keep boots on the ground, then the chances that the Ukrainians could come back and retake those cities are very high and likely. And so as he moves up to all these little cities and takes them, he's sapping away the combat power needed to be able to to do things like Odessa and to be able to do things like Kiev. A better strategy, in my view, would have been to take, go for Kiev, go for Odessa, bypass all these other cities. Once you get Kiev and Odessa, then work your way outward to these other cities and take those down. But now, as you can see, he's stalled 
there in Kyiv for many reasons. Number one, he's sapping away his combat power dealing with these other small towns. But the other is that all the undisciplined problems that we just spoke of earlier. Right. He's the general. But, Trace, let me just offer the proof. Kyrgyzstan mm-hmm. was taken. They mm-hmm. can't control Kyrgyzstan. A small town right. en route to taking Odessa. And they're, the people, the protesters are coming right back at him. And you saw those vehicles uh, backing up when the, when, the, when the Ukrainian people were shouting, get out of my country. There are bakeries in Kyrgyzstan that are open to have, and they won't allow Russian troops inside. That's what. That's when you're saying, "Hey, listen, we're going to protest you. You, you're not allowed in to have a cookie. So don't even right. come near me." And that's the whole thing: is they're being bold, and the reason that they're they're winning, and this is a great strategy because he's right. They should have taken Kiev, and they should have taken Odessa. You take the, the Black Sea ports, and you take Kiev. The problem now is every time Russian troops move in, you have the Ukrainian troops surround them, and they they fight and get them out of there. So they've got a tactical advantage because mm-hmm. they know it's a home field advantage, right? right? Every I, sport has a home field advantage. I agree, but I don't even think they'll be able to. Hold those cities, even with they nope. took the 150,000 and put them in there because, like you said, be surrounded and the people hate you. They hate you, you thought they liked you this because they speak your language. Now they will hate you for generations. Uh, mark my words. Back in a moment, Trace Gallagher is here for a few more minutes. You're listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest growing talk show in America. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Do you plan to visit the border? Uh, um, not today. <laughs> You're going to have to um, Xerox or, or, or photocopy your ID to send it in to prove you are who you are. Well, there are a whole lot of people, especially people who live in rural communities, who don't. There's no Kinko's. There's no Office Max. With us in government? We campaign with the plan, uppercase T, uppercase P, the plan. We've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. And I haven't been to Europe. What do you think your biggest failure has been at this point? (laughs) To not get out of D.C. more. (laughs) That is a little of the best of Kamala Harris. We could have went for another half hour. Trace Gallagher, a few more minutes. I mean, and then you have this story, this book come out, you know, from two New York Times writers. It's not Uh exactly... You know, it's not exactly uh, Sean Hannity's book on with the insiders, a conservative point of view. She's off to an awful start and she's not comfortable on her feet, Trace. And yeah, you're exactly You know right. it probably better as attorney general and senator. Which is what Coast. I was going to say is that they knew this going in. I Did mean, you? We could go back as a California attorney general. She had the same thing where people would accuse her of either not paying attention to the briefing, not doing her homework or just not quite getting it when she gets up to speak publicly because she does this all the time. She did it in the debates, which is why she fell out of the, the running for the in the presidential campaign so quick. Even and though so she early. had a ton of money. Ton of money, you know, uh, a black woman who was really be, the, touted as, and she, I mean, you know, look, she came through the ranks in California like a rocket, right? She was in San Francisco. She was under Willie Brown's uh, arm, and man, she came through California like a rocket. And then she started speaking publicly, and people are like, "What's going on here?" Right? Is she always like this? Is she not doing her homework? Is she not paying attention to the briefing? It's been going on now for for ten. 10, 11 years. You know, what's amazing is that when people all got caught up what she said in Poland, when she got that uh, question about refugees, mm-hmm. and that to me is the most obvious question, period. They've taken 1.8 million refugees. How are you going to help out Poland? Do they want money? And what can we do? And not only did she not have an answer, she left. And I was more offended 
Not that she laughed and passed it off, but she had no answer. I would have loved that question. Right. Hey, we're here to help. She didn't it's, know where she was in in respect to Ukraine. Yeah, Mark Penn says likely she will be the front runner because she'll have the infrastructure should Joe Biden not run again. Trace will see you all over the channel. I'll say thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. <laughs> Everybody's laughing. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.